I would look at myself and say, well, there's somebody who's never going to come to know the Lord. It's just a reminder of the power of God's grace, that He's a God who seeks the lost. The great thing is that He uses us as a part of that process, and that's what I'm trying to train my students. Welcome to First Person, a weekly conversation telling the story of someone whose life has found meaning and purpose through faith in Christ. I'm Wayne Shepherd. My guest today is a man who once described himself as a stranger in the house of God. We'll talk with Dr. John Kessler today. Before we go to today's interview, however, I want to remind you of our website, which can provide you with additional information about the guests you hear each week. FirstPersonInterview.com is the online address for this program. There's an archive of programs you may have missed, as well as a schedule of upcoming guests. Look us up online at FirstPersonInterview.com. You'll also find us on Facebook, where you can leave comments and suggestions. We're at Facebook.com forward slash FirstPersonInterview. Well, joining us today is Dr. John Kessler, Chair and Professor of Pastoral Studies at the Moody Bible Institute. But he will be the first to tell you that what he does now is a long way from where he started in life. Today, John tells us of his spiritual journey that took many winding paths on his way to faith in Christ. We spoke on the phone recently, and I began by asking John about the spiritual atmosphere of the home he grew up in. Basically, I would call it pagan, or maybe neo-pagan. My parents intentionally didn't raise me with any kind of religious training. My dad was a, he grew up in a Catholic home, and his father was the parish doctor for the priests and the nurses, and he went to a parochial school, and that had really soured him on religion. So he didn't want to have anything to do with the church. Uh, my, My mom's, my grandmother, my mom's mother was really kind of all over the map. She, you know, she had gone to a universalist church and more traditional, and so neither of them really identified themselves as Christians. My dad called himself a Buddhist, actually, but he was more like a kind of a suburban Buddhist. You know, he, (laughs) he read, you know, he would read Alan Watts, and so we didn't, we didn't go to church at all, and, uh, grew up in a, the neighborhood I lived in was primarily Roman Catholic neighborhood, so we kind of stood out in that. But probably today we wouldn't, you know, but back then in the 50s and 60s, uh, we were kind of unusual in that way. Did that raise any questions in your mind? I mean, did you have any spiritual longings as a child? I, or I did. In fact, I was deeply interested in from my point of view, I was deeply interested in God. You know, later when I read the scriptures, I you know, I came to understand that what I thought was seeking God was, in many respects, moving away from Him, because I wasn't interested in Him initially as He revealed Himself. I was more interested in kind of the God that I might design, you know, a God I could be comfortable with. But I did have a lot of questions, and I used to watch, you know, early, the early religious broadcasting on TV when, uh, you know, Oral Roberts, back, you know, back in the old days, was on television. He might have even been the, you know, the first. Yeah, he was one of the first, and I'm sure that set you straight, right? <laughs> well, you know, it was fascinating to me that to, to watch what was going on there and, and really wonder, was was there really some power there? I used to watch, uh, uh, you know, religious broadcasting or, or and on Sundays, and so I did a lot of thinking about thinking about God in in those early days, but didn't have much insight. 
you think that's unusual? I mean, how old were you when when this this quest began for you? Oh, it's, it goes back as early as I can remember. Really? Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I I don't think it's. I think everybody has uh, uh, profound questions about the world that they live in. Where do we come from? Is there is there purpose behind the things that happens to me? And uh, I, I think it's very common. But there's also that reality of you know, of sin in our hearts that causes us also to want to to suppress what we what in what we really know about God, and so the the things the kind of God that we would create for ourselves is uh, doesn't correspond much to the God of the Bible. And uh, so, where does a a child who has this interest and, and parents who are disinterested, where do you go with your questions? Well, I would ask my parents about it, and the answers they gave were not very satisfying, typically. Uh, I can remember the first time I really grappled with the idea of death, one of my father's co-workers had died. And and I had really not ever, uh, I was quite young at the time, Had I really hadn't grappled with the whole concept. And when I asked him some questions about it, you know, what was going to happen to that person now. And basically my father's answer was, when you're dead, you're dead. That's it. And, and I was crushed by that. I remember bursting into tears at the thought, as he described it, that this life, you know, this physical life was all there was. And, uh, so a lot, you know, (laughs) my, my own developing of my foundational ideas of uh, what God was like, you know, came from a range of sources from movies that I watched, you know, King of Kings and and some of the, the, the biblical epics to books that I read. Really wasn't until years later when, um, when I began to read the scriptures, uh, which was among uh, several other things I was doing to kind of seek spiritually that I really got clarity but but I did hear the gospel when I was uh young I somebody invited me to a church uh just actually just down the street and uh they had one of these midweek children's clubs that was sort of like uh like the cub scouts only yeah, not I, exactly I was in one of those myself the, right the kind J- of paramilitary yeah, you know? the JIM club Jesus is mine club yeah, this was called uh, Christian Service Brigade, or yeah. uh, Stockade, actually. Yeah, it yeah. was the younger one. All pre-Iwana uh, time. Mm-hmm. Right. And it was, the first, it was the first time that I'd ever heard the gospel. And you know, it was just a straightforward presentation of the danger of hell and the hope of Christ. But, you know, it, it really gripped me. And so I, at that time, I made a profession of faith. They asked, the after the the leader shared the gospel. He asked for anybody who wanted to receive Christ to stand up, and I did. And, uh, you know, a couple of days later, I got a nice letter from the pastor, which I was impressed with. But <laughs> but I didn't go to church, and I didn't really have any follow-up. So essentially, from that point on, I, you know, I continued to develop in a really irreligious lifestyle until uh, my high school years, when I when I really wanted to settle some spiritual issues and was 
seeking in several different areas, and one of the things I thought was, oh, the Bible's a spiritual book. Oh, maybe I'll start reading the Bible. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. What, what drove you to the Bible? Was it just simply curiosity? Yeah, because uh, somebody had given me a Bible. I, I had, uh, my, my mother had given me one for Christmas one year, and then I, somebody, one of the Gideons, I got a Gideon's Bible from somewhere, and yeah, this I, was, I think I know where that came from. <laughs> yeah, and then and then in the, uh, <laughs> and then it, you know this was kind of the, uh, uh, in the this was in the seventies, early seventies, was sort of the height of the Jesus movement too. So there was a lot of kind of spiritual interest. So I just thought, ah, you know, the Bible's a spiritual book. I'll. Uh, I'll just start reading the Bible. So I basically just opened it up to the Gospels. And uh, Do you remember start... your, your initial reactions to what you were reading, what your feelings about it? I was really gripped by it. I, in fact, when I, as I read about Christ coming to the disciples and calling them to follow him, I felt personally confronted with Christ. And I was working a midnight shift at a jack-in-the-box restaurant, and I would do my work, and then I would go and and I'd start to read in the back room. In fact, I was reading the Bible, and I was—I uh, had this set of tarot cards, these fortune-telling cards, and I would kind of go back <laughs> That's and forth. That's not a good combination. <laughs> no, I'd throw the tarot cards, and then I'd pick up the Bible, and I'd start to read it. But when I came to those the, that place in the Scriptures where Jesus calls the disciples, I, I felt that he was calling me to follow him. And at that point, that gospel I'd heard when I was uh, a, a younger— I came to mind, and I realized that Christ was calling me to be his disciple. And so I I would say today I recommitted my mm-hmm. life to Christ. At, at that time, I just knew I want to follow this Jesus. And the way I understood it, I, I went home, uh, you know, the next day, and, and my mother was uh, at the stove, and I said, I said, hey, Mom, uh, guess what? I've decided to become a Jesus freak. <laughs> and she said, oh, that's nice, I think. <laughs> so, but, but that's, that, you know, that's how I understood it. I, I, what I understood was, I understood that Jesus was calling me to follow him, and I was committing to be mm-hmm. one of his followers at that point. And it really was, at that point, I didn't have it. I wasn't planning to go to church. I basically was just going to read the Bible and follow Jesus. Was that a dramatic turning point then? I mean, was it noticeable to those around you? Yeah, it really was because, well, you know, for one thing, it it began to affect my lifestyle. Like, for example, one night I was working, uh, as I was working at that restaurant, you know, somebody gave me a a, a joint, a marijuana cigarette as a tip, and and I just took it and put it in my pocket and went on my, you know, was working. And then about about 10 minutes later, it suddenly dawned on me, oh man, I'm supposed to be following Jesus. I don't think I can smoke this joint. (laughs) And, uh, and that was really, uh, you know, actually that was a kind of the first point where the Holy Spirit said, wait a minute, here's, if you're going to follow Christ, you're going to have to do things differently. And so I, I, stuffed it down the drain, you know, and, <laughs> and, uh, and then people said, actually, people said that, uh, my whole facial expression changed after I began to walk with Christ, that, uh, they could, they could actually visibly see a difference. We'll dig deeper into the life story of Dr. John Kessler coming up in the second half of today's First Person. 
Next week, the story of a man who survived leukemia and the spiritual lessons he learned. I had been a believer, but I had lost some passion. And leukemia and the awareness that my life was so frail uh, jump-started a passion in me about the important things, not just the urgent ones. I hope you'll join us for the testimony of John Sidema next week on First Person. Talking with Dr. John Kessler, who currently serves as the chair of the Pastoral Studies Department at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, and we've mentioned his books on the program today and will again at the conclusion of the program. John, you've become a Christian. You, you picked up the Bible largely on your own and began reading it, and you were confronted with Christ. Um, did other people then come along? Because we, we need other people to, to mentor us, don't we, disciple us? Yeah, one of the first guys who came by was uh, actually one of the customers at the, um, at the restaurant where I was working, and we had a drive-through there. And in those in that first in those first days after I made that commitment to Christ, I you know I I kind of struggled because I was still uncertain of of where I was at. I was reading the Bible. I was my my parents were both uh, alcoholics and was grappling with the effect that was having on my family life and so struggling with depression. This one particular night I I was uh talking to God and I actually in you know talking silently in my mind to him and I said to him, God, if you're up there, I just want you to know I wish I had never been born. Mm. And I looked up and this guy was at the drive through window who I knew was what we call the Jesus freak. And I waited on him, and I, I knew this guy. He, you know, he'd come by every once in a while. There was something about him that was really compelling to me. And uh, I waited on him, and he just—he didn't really say anything. Just was friendly. Just as he was leaving, he dropped a track and a Gospel of John on the counter and said, "If you get a chance, read this." The track said, "If being born hasn't given you much satisfaction, try being born again." Oh boy! <laughs> and I thought, okay, somebody's oh. listening to me. <laughs> And he he was part of a little coffee house that was a few blocks away from where I lived that was uh, sponsored by a church, the, the Lost Coin Coffee House. And so I started to go there. And um, so that my, my very at the very beginning, that was kind of the first uh, uh, encounter with discipleship, where they would have a meeting on on uh, on uh, Saturday nights. In fact, that's where I started to preach. Uh, really, like. Within the first year, uh, I shared my testimony and really felt, you know, it was a compelling experience for me. And then started not very well, I'm sure, but just started to share what I knew from the Bible on a on a pretty regular basis there. But initially, as I was going to the coffee house, you know, I I liked the relationship with the people that I had there. I was not I was not at all interested in going to church. In fact, I felt at the time that uh, church would ruin my spiritual life. So <laughs> Those were uh, the times, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. So I, I was going to the coffee house, and um, and yet get, feeling this sense of desire to be involved in a preaching ministry of some kind. And one night the pastor of the church that sponsored the coffee house came in and pr- basically he preached a sermon. And I don't really even remember all the details of it except for the the overall sense I got from it was God basically saying, 
if you want to preach, where do you think you're going to preach if you don't go to church? <laughs> and uh, really felt convicted that I that I needed to get connected to a church. And so that's really when I began to uh, attend church. That and through the invitation of one of the fellows at the coffee house uh-huh. who who you know helped me to get over my fear of of walking in the door and in fact he he was the one the first time I attended that church it was during the song service and they were singing one of these old, you know they sing out of the old red red hymnal he he leans to me in the middle of the song he says I love these songs you don't have to know any of them to sing them <laughs> so uh do you remember the first time you preached a sermon I do yeah yeah well actually it was the first time I got up and spoke I was giving my testimony, and uh, I had written it out on on uh, loose leaf paper. I held the paper up in front of my face, and I'm sure I had no vocal dynamics. You know, <laughs> I'm sure I just <laughs> that that's what you teach today, right? Right, right. I teach preaching. I'm sure I broke every rule, but yet and yet there was just some you know powerful sense of of uh, acting, you know, exercising uh, an ability that. God wanted something God wanted me to do. It was it was incredibly rewarding. I'm sure at that time it was far more rewarding to me than it was <laughs> to anybody else. And then, you know, and then uh, a little while later, you know, I got the opportunity to get up and talk about a passage of scripture and I, I, again, I in those days it was handwritten on loose leaf paper, you know, and uh and now you've written a book, Folly, Grace and Power: The Mysterious Act of Preaching. You teach at Moody uh, homiletics and others, I, I assume, right? Yes, uh, I teach uh, uh, pastoral leadership uh, in uh, co- congregational dynamics, spiritual life and community, and uh, courses in preaching. Well, let me transition from your testimony, so to speak, to your calling then, John. Uh, is it a calling to preach? Yes, I think it is. I, I, well, I think that there are there are people who do it as part of their vocation. You know, there are people who are the their their ministry role in the life of the church is pastor teacher and those individuals you know they're they're preaching on a regular basis because it's part of their their life calling and then there are others who who they're not doing it vocationally but God has given them the ability and and they're gifted and uh we we would typically refer to them as lay preachers but um I, I, yes, I think that I think you have people who have an ability to preach and exercise it. I think occasionally, and then you have people who have a calling to preach on a regular basis, mm-hmm. and that's basically what they do as a vocation. I appreciate your subtitle of your book, "The Mysterious Act of Preaching," because I know this has happened to you as well. You've, I've been in some places in the world where a very uneducated man would get up and preach a sermon that's just empowered by God. Yes, that's one of the, it's, it's the mystery of it, and it's, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones talks about the romance of preaching, where you never really know how God is going to work, and, but it's also one of the frustrations of it, that you can, you have all of this work that you put into the sermon, you know, you get up, you deliver it to the best of your ability, and then the result of it, you can't, you can't always necessarily directly connect it to your good work. You know, somebody somebody comes up to me after the sermon and they start to tell me how God spoke to them during the message. And I'm after a while, I wonder if they were in the same room. You know, it's almost <laughs> as if God took them aside and had a kind of a private conversation with them. And I think what happens is that God 
through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit uses what I say often to trigger things that in the mind and the experience of the listener that involve a longer conversation that God is having with that individual as he's working, as he's drawing that person to himself or as he's working in their lives. He brings things to mind, you know. He, he, he brings scripture to mind that they may have read or something that somebody else said. And so uh, you, you can't always tell whether you're doing well or not. Some of my best sermons, in my mind, had the least effect, and some of my worst efforts seem to be the most powerful to people who listen to me. Well, can it be both a spiritual gift and an art at the same time? I think it is, yeah. In fact, uh, you know, there's a really, it, 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 there's a science to it. There's this the techniques of hermeneutics where you have to analyze the text and structure the way you structure the message. There's also an aesthetic to it. There's an, there's an artistic dimension to it, the way you use language. There's a craft that can be developed. And then there's that mysterious dimension of the Holy Spirit who you can't, you can't control what he's going to do. You know that he's promised to honor his word, but you don't know how he's going to work. So I'm in a position as a preacher. I have to do... I have to do my work, and then as an artist, I want to I want to craft it so that you know so that it it appeals, so that it says it as powerfully as I can make it, and then I have to trust that God is going to do whatever He's going to do as a result of it. Final question: Starting where you started in life, and now to see how God is using you to replicate yourself through other preachers. Uh, you you have to just wonder at at this mysterious God who works in wonderful ways, John. Well, yes, it's it's a great encouragement to me, you know, to to look at how God has worked in my life, and then to see other people that I'm praying for that are who are who are important to me, who are dear to me, and who oh, I look at them from a distance and say, you know, I don't see how that person is ever going to come to Christ. I, I think if I had, if I, I've often thought if I had ever seen myself coming today, you know, if I were to pass myself on the street back uh, the way I was in, uh, you know, the late sixties, early seventies, I would, I would look at myself and say, well, there's somebody who's never going to come to know the Lord. It's just a reminder of the power of God's grace and that he's a God who seeks the lost. And the great thing is that he uses us as a part of that process. And, and that's what I'm trying to train my students to, to be, is to, to, to cooperate with that great work of God. Much more of John Kessler's story is told in his book, A Stranger in the House of God. And when you visit our website, you'll find links to that book and others that John has written. Just go to firstpersoninterview.com. We mentioned today that John now trains young pastors for the ministry. Well, his most recent book, Folly, Grace, and Power, The Mysterious Act of Preaching, was recently named as one of the books of the year by Preaching Today in their annual book awards. You'll find a link at firstpersoninterview.com. And anytime you have a suggestion or comment about this program, the easiest way to reach us is through our Facebook page. We're found at facebook.com forward slash firstpersoninterview. When we return next week, you'll meet John Sidema, a man who not only was diagnosed with leukemia, but received that news at the same time as his wife was hospitalized for the disease. It's a dramatic story, and you'll hear it next week on First Person. With thanks to my friend and producer, Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepard. We hope to see you again next week for First Person. First Person.